Well, we certainly had a rich time in the Psalms during August, and if you missed any part of that series, you can go back to our website and watch it there or through our YouTube channel. And I got to tell you, it's just a great series. I don't think you'll regret it. Um, but that's the past today, and for the foreseeable future, we are looking at the books of Ezra and Nehemiah in a series that we're calling Rise Up and Build. As you walked in today, you may have noticed that we have movie posters now in the lobby. Uh, this is these books, I think, are a cinematic experience. And the story, as we heard last week from Pastor Dave, is all about restoration. Would you mind switching the confidence monitor uh, back there? I can't see my slides. Thanks. Um, what needs to be restored? If, we missed week, if you missed week one, we covered some of Israel's history. If you read the Old Testament narrative, you will find that Israel's history begins with uh, God's calling of Abraham. And then Abraham has many descendants who grow into a mighty nation. Uh, their most famous king is David, who leads Israel at the height of its power. But Israel has a problem, and it's a problem that we often share, and, and that is this. We don't remember the power comes from God himself, Yahweh. And eventually there's a civil war. The nation splits into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, and both eventually neglect their worship of Yahweh, and then God allows enemies to come in. The northern kingdom is conquered by the Assyrians, and the southern kingdom is conquered by the Babylonians, who take them off into exile, where they remain until God's favor allows them to return. And that's where we pick up the story in Ezra and Nehemiah. The story, as we learned last week, highlights three key leaders, Zerubbabel, Ezra, and, of course, Nehemiah. And God chooses to bring restoration through these leaders. Now, today we're going to look at the second part of Zerubbabel's story in Ezra 4 to 6. But what I want you to see at the beginning here is that each leader answers the call of God while in exile. And I think that's something that many of us can relate to because today it may feel like the Christian church, to some extent, culturally speaking, is in exile Author Rod Dreher penned a well-known book back in 2017 entitled The Benedict Option. And that book highlighted the growing influence of secularism and the challenges Christians will face in the coming years. And that was actually seven years ago. So what Dreher says is that the American church is facing a time of testing. Will we stand up to the challenges facing us? He writes this. He says, we in the American church are facing a time of testing. Our testing may not look like the testing of what the church in China is undergoing or the church in Nigeria or the church in Senegal, as a matter of fact, but it's still a test. And so the, this anecdote is more typical, and this is what he offers. He says, true story, a couple in suburban Washington, D.C., or it might as well have been suburban New York, approached their pastor asking him to help their college student who was a daughter and who felt a calling to be an overseas missionary. And the pastor said, well, that's wonderful. Oh, you misunderstand, the parents said. We want you to help us talk her out of ruining her life. Now, don't raise any hands, but I wonder if anybody's tried to do this. And don't come to me because I'm on the missions team. Rod Dreher continues pointing out the contrast between the girl and her parents, and he says this, Christians like that couple won't make it through what's to come. Christians with sacrificial hearts like their daughters will, but it's going to cost them plenty. Now, how would you respond if your daughter or your son came to you and said they're planning on being a missionary? And I don't want you to miss what Rod Dreher is saying here. He's saying this young woman felt a calling to bring the gospel, to build the kingdom overseas, and her, and her parent wanted the pastor to talk her out of it. 
If God calls you, you must answer. And what we need today are people with courageous and sacrificial hearts who are building God's kingdom overseas, yes, but also in our backyard. And notice what he says prophetically here, I think. He says, Christians with sacrificial hearts will make it through what's to come, but it's going to cost us. Are you ready? Are you willing to give it all for Jesus and his kingdom? Ask yourself, are you willing to lose your job? Are you willing for your finances to be affected? Are you willing for, your, for the need to move your child to a different school? Are you willing to lose some friends and influence? It's going to look different for each of us. How will we respond? Now, in Matthew chapter 6, in the middle of his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, um, I think, offers a kind of response here, and he teaches us to pray. And it's significant what he includes in the Lord's Prayer. How should we pray every day? In fact, I'm going to put the Lord's Prayer on the screen right here. It's in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9 to 13. And I like it, I'd like us all to recite it together. So let's do that on the count of three. One, two, three. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So let's break that down. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. He starts with God's glory, right? That's our, that's our telos, that's our purpose, right? Second, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Building his kingdom is our mission. Following Jesus is not about just getting to heaven. It's about bringing the values of heaven to earth. Give us today our daily bread. God will provide. Can we say that together? God will provide. And if following Jesus is going to cost you, we need to pray this part of the Lord's Prayer more. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. No matter what happens, we need to be people who forgive. And then lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Because when, Je when, when we follow Jesus, and if it gets hard, there's going to be a temptation to give up and give in. There's an evil adversary who's out to get us. We have to resist him. Because following Jesus, friends, answering his call today requires brave, sacrificial hearts. There will be resistance, but we can't give up. Do you think that people tried to talk Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah out of answering their call to restore the temple and the city? I imagine there was plenty of people who said, you're crazy, don't do it. But praise God, these men resisted and said, no, the walls of the city are broken, the temple is gone, we need to rebuild them so a fresh work of God can come. Now, we may not be called to build a structure for God, but we are called to build His kingdom. And while our society seems to be breaking down in so many ways, it's time for Christians to build, to build the kingdom. If, if you're a Christian, every one of us has a calling. Every one of us has a unique calling and a unique sphere of influence that God can use. In fact, last week, Pastor Dave mentioned that Zerubbabel's name means planted in Babylon. He was put there for a time and for a reason. It was even right there in his name. And the truth is that each of us were planted somewhere. Where are you planted? Right? Think about your neighborhood and your school and your work or even your church. Each of us is planted there for a reason. But here's what I want you to see today. Where you are planted is a clue to where you are called. Because it's not enough just to be planted, you have to answer the call. Where is God calling you? If, now, if you want help figuring that out, I'll offer one more shout-out for our calling workshop that we're offering on October the 14th. You can register now, go to our website, uh, let us know that you're coming. We would love to have you. 
Because where God plants you, he calls you. And when you start answering God's call, you start attempting great things for God. But resistance is going to come, and that's the tension. It's hard. There's going to be pushback, right? Where have you encountered resistance? That's why you need the calling. It could be from anywhere. It could be the lunchroom at work. It could be a mother's gathering. It could be the classroom at school. And when certain topics start to come up, worldviews are exposed. And, and if you start sharing the gospel, if you start standing up for what the Bible says, if you start attempting to make a difference in the culture outside the church walls, people may not like it. Why? Well, well it's really an issue of worship. People don't want to worship and submit their lives to Jesus. They want to live for themselves, ultimately. I mean, if you consider some of the major cultural issues of the day at the roots of issues like sexuality or materialism or freedom and control, it's all about wanting to live for ourselves. It's all about wanting to be our own God. And if you threaten people's self-sovereignty, there will be a pushback. The question for us, church, is how will we handle the resistance? Will we give up? Or will we rise up? There's a great scene in the movie Rocky Balboa where Rocky's talking to his son about what it takes to stay in the ring, to stay in the fight. And here's what he says. He says, it's not about how hard you can hit. Sometimes we think that's what you have to do. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. And friends, that's what Ezra chapter 4 to 6 is all about. Zerubbabel and his followers want to rebuild the temple so that the true God can be praised and worshipped. That's their calling. But in this section, they start to encounter serious resistance, and they were asking the same question. Should we give up? Should we move forward? Yes, we're planted and called. How do we rise up and build God's kingdom despite the opposition? So for the rest of our time, what I want to do is speak with you about overcoming opposition as we build God's kingdom. Because when we choose not just to be planted, but to answer the call, resistance will follow. The narrative in Ezra 4 to 6 offers a clear three-step process to overcoming opposition, and I'll just voice it this way. You have to face the adversary, that's chapter 4. You've got to seek prophetic insight, that's chapter 5, and then you have to rest in the king's favor, that's chapter 6. So before we uh, dive into that, let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, I come before you, I thank you for my friends who are here today. Lord, I pray that you would speak to our hearts. Lord, I don't know what opposition, what resistance people are facing today, but you do. Uh, you know, Lord, and you are greater than it. And so I just pray that you would come and, and meet us where we are and, and let us leave this place trusting more in you, giving you more glory with our lives. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So overcoming resistance requires that we face the adversary. You don't run away. So let's pick up the story in Ezra chapter 4, verse 1. It says this. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel. All right, so we're getting right into it this week. This is, a, this is an action movie. What do we learn right away? We learn there's a confrontation between Zerubbabel, his people, and their enemies. Now, you have to ask a few questions as we get into this scene. Number one, who are these adversaries? Well, many were from uh, Samaria, which you may remember was an important area even in Jesus' day. The Samaritans were descendants of the northern kingdom of Israel who were conquered by the Assyrians. And this people was then scattered, and they never really truly came back to their homeland. Instead, they started to intermix their worship with other gods. And that's going to be an important fact in just a moment. Uh, they are enemies, specifically of Judah and Benjamin, 
Two tribes who were the nucleus of the southern kingdom of Judah and were conquered by the Babylonians. And these are the people that Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah are leading back to Jerusalem. They were the returned exiles, which literally means the sons of captivity. The Lord uh, has brought them home to rebuild the temple. So let's just picture the scene and put it in our context. Let's just imagine that uh, for some reason somebody came and they conquered New Jersey. And... Uh, the temple here at Billington, our sanctuary, was laid waste. It's in, it's in rubble, and our enemy carried uh, the people of Millington, the congregation, over across the river to captivity in, like, Pennsylvania. A group of people, after you were there for many years, came and then led our people back right here to Basking Ridge to rebuild the sanctuary. And, and so we're outside on a hot day rebuilding the sanctuary when, when our leader is approached by some strangers. And what do they say? Look at verse 2. It says, They approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. Well, now that's an interesting proposal. You got some strangers coming up. They're building the temple, and, and they ask to join in. Let us build with you, which seems like great news, right? The work is going to get done faster. Well, hold on a second. Right, what else do we learn? We, we learn that these are people who were brought here by the Assyrian king, which points us back to a story in 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 24 and 25. It says this, And the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon and placed them in the cities of where? Of Samaria, instead of the people of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. And at the beginning of their dwelling there, they did not fear the Lord. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. <laughs> and you say, okay, wow, that's crazy. That's in the Bible? It's right there. So this provides some background for the people who approached Zerubbabel with their request, because basically what happened is they were forced to live in this depopulated area of Samaria, and it's clear that they did not fear the Lord, which it, biblically that's code word for they really didn't follow God. So there was judgment. And then when the Assyrian king heard about this, what his answer to do was to send an Israelite priest to teach all these people the law. And the result was then a mixture of religions. 2 Kings 17.34 says this, So they feared the Lord, but they also served their own gods. They learned some things about God, but they still held on to other gods. And I go through all that to show you that just because they came up and said they worshipped Yahweh does not mean they truly did. And, and that's, a, that's a salient point in today's world because just because somebody claims to be a Christian, it does not mean they actually are. I mean, again, what do these adversaries say? They said, we worship your God as you do, but you ask, did you really? So if somebody comes up to you today and says, I'm also a Christian, I worship God as you do, you should ask them, well, what is a Christian? And, and you'll know by their answers if they truly understand the gospel. Because we live in a pluralistic age, and many people are willing to accept, accept parts of many different religions, but then call it Christianity. Many people in today's world will accept parts of the Christian faith, but ignore others. Many people will then mix Christian doctrine with things like secularism and call it Christian, but it's not. I mean, think about the things you hear on the news. People will get up and they'll claim, well, Christianity is a religion of love, right? But what, what they mean is very different than what's in the Bible, and so they'll reject things like the virgin birth or the necessity of the atonement of Christ or the authority of the Bible and a whole lot more. 
And so love, in that case, has a very secular meaning wrapped up in Christian language. And that's a good illustration, I think, of what Zerubbabel encountered. And then his response makes more sense. So look at verse 3. It says, Zerubbabel, Yeshua, and the rest of the heads of fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God. But we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. So what's his response? Thanks, but no thanks. Which, again, to our modern ears sounds a bit harsh, right? Isn't the church supposed to be inclusive? And I suspect there's a lot more going on here, right? Let me offer another modern equivalent. Let's just say that there was a, a Muslim imam from our area that came up to us and wanted to partner on a community event. Well, I think as long as that was neutral and offered community benefit, I, that would be okay. But, but if they asked to have a joint wor interfaith worship service, well, that's a different story, right? Uh, because we don't believe we worship the same God. And, and I think the same principle is, is happening here in Ezra 4. Because what Zerubbabel and the leaders are saying is this, we will not allow false beliefs and false worship into our covenant community. We are building this temple so that the true God alone will be worshipped. And by doing this, what they were doing was standing up for the truth and fulfilling God's call for them. What was God's call? It was to rebuild the temple. Nothing else matters. And that then leads to some consequences. So at the beginning of the message, I, I said this, when you attempt great things for God, resistance will come. And especially when you push back against cultural narratives that are not from God, people are going to resist. And Zerubbabel's response to these adversaries in verse 3 actually sets up years of resistance to rebuilding the temple of God. Look at verse 4 and 5. It says this, then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah, and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now take that in for a moment, because this response started a period of opposition which lasted until the reign of King Darius, which actually was 40 years later. So th these verses refer to a campaign of harassment by the local people against the people of God for decades. And if you notice that word discouraged, it actually the Hebrew word has a multi-layered meaning. It can refer to sneers or people giving the Jews dirty looks in public. It can also refer to intimidation and threats. It was so powerful that the whole people of Judah were afraid to build the temple for 40 years. So let me ask you a question. Are you afraid to build God's kingdom? And we might fear losing our job. We might fear isolation from friends or family members. You, you might fear public shaming. But most of us are not literally building a temple for God, a physical structure. But as New Testament followers of Jesus, we are called to boldly share the gospel message, to live ethically according to biblical values, to defend truth, to speak with kindness and respect, to pursue justice for the outcast, and if we do that, there's often consequences. What did Jesus teach us to pray? He said, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So is there anything happening in our society that would make us afraid to build God's kingdom? As Rod Dreher said at the beginning, Christians are learning that building God's kingdom may cost us something. The question is, will we give up 
Or will, will we throw in the towel? Or will we move forward in faith despite the consequences? Now, the rest of Ezra chapter 4 actually doesn't occur in chronological order. It, it outlines a letter that was written by some of the adversaries of God's people to Artaxerxes, king of Persia, which likely happened a little later, not, not at the beginning of Zerubbabel's time. Most commentators think the reason the author adds this letter to the section is that its details show how immense the persecution was. Because again, for decades, the enemies of God kept the temple from being built. And in the letter, we see that they cast a narrative that the Jews should not be allowed to rebuild the temple and the city because throughout history, this city, the city beyond the river, Jerusalem has been a rebellious city. It's a threat to the king's power. And so the king orders that the city not be rebuilt. Again, it's an issue of worship. The king wants all the glory. Now, if you fast forward to New Testament times, to the Roman Empire, Christians there were also seen as a threat to the emperor. And why was that? That was because of worship. They did not worship him as Lord. Caesar wanted to be Lord, but the Christians said, Jesus is Lord. And again, in our modern day, as I mentioned earlier, the reason people resist the Christian faith in many ways is because we want to be our own lords. We want to rule our life. But when you become a Christian, when you give your life to Christ, we surrender our self-sovereignty, which we never had to begin with. The gospel is a threat to perceived power, so people resist it. In Ezra chapter 4, it finishes with a reminder that our adversaries will go to great lengths to thwart the building of God's kingdom. So skip down to verse 23 of chapter 4. It says this, Then when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read... They went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem and by force and power made them cease. Then the work of the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So as we're going to see in a moment, Darius is very favorable to the Jews. But for decades before he comes, the adversaries prevented the completion of this temple. So I'll ask again, are you afraid to build God's kingdom? And what adversaries are stopping you? And are they coming with force and power? A lot of people think that verse refers to the, the actual second breaking of the walls and the burning of the gate that Nehemiah talks about in chapter, chapter 2, chapter 1. Are people attempting to silence you for preaching, of the, preaching the gospel? Now, before I leave this section, I'd like to outline three forms of adversaries that you may encounter, and we just saw them in the text. But I also want to offer a couple suggestions on how to face them. First... Specific people can be our adversaries. So Ezra 4.1, we read about people, uh, specific people who come to Zerubbabel. And then later we read about specific people who are attempting to influence the king. And right now, you might be picturing specific people in your life keeping you from doing what God has called you to do. But I want to offer an important caveat here. There is an enemy behind those people. In fact, we did a whole series this summer on spiritual warfare where, where if you read chapter 6 of Ephesians, Paul, you know that Paul tells us our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our, our battle is against the spiritual forces of darkness in the heavenly realms who are influencing these people. How do you face them? You speak the truth in love and you leave the consequences to God. Who are the adversarial people in your life? Second, ideas can be adversarial. See, once Zerubbabel rejected the adversaries offer to help with the temple, he then became the enemy. The mood in the, in the room and the culture changed. The adversaries started then to recruit people to their side by spreading what? By spreading ideas. 
Even in the letter to the king, they sold the idea that Jerusalem was a threat to his power. And ideas have consequences. In this case, the, t- in this case, the temple was delayed. Now, let me just state there's many bad ideas floating around our modern world. And all you have to do is look at advertisements or peruse entertainment platforms or listen to the debates that are out there, and you will start scratching your head and saying, what is going on? Ideas can be adversarial to the gospel. How do you face that adversary? You speak the truth, and you try to influence people with better ideas. You show them the beauty of the gospel. What are the adversarial ideas in your life? And then third, cultural systems can be adversarial. At the end of the king's letter in Ezra 4, the king goes about making a policy that went against God's kingdom agenda. And today, similarly, once bad ideas start to get into the the culture, they can eventually get embedded in institutions as bad policies that go against God and his gospel. Ideas create these cultural narratives. They get embedded, like I said, into things like like schools or even government. And you may right now be be experiencing policies that are adversarial to your faith, How do you face them? You speak the truth, and you advocate for change. Why? Because everybody was made to worship God. And when God's kingdom is built, everybody flourishes. What adversaries are you facing? Zerubbabel and his people faced great opposition to their calling to build the temple. They faced their adversaries, and there were consequences. So then how do you move forward? That's the question. Well, secondly, you need to seek prophetic insight. Seek prophetic insight. This is Ezra 5. When we encounter adversarial resistance to the gospel, we are often wondering, what do we do next? How long-suffering can we be? And ultimately, this resistance will expose what we believe about God and His power. It's then that we need prophetic insight. Now, the word prophet is used a number of different ways in the Bible. When I say prophetic insight, what I mean is the ability to see beyond the lies, beyond the bad ideas, beyond the destructive narratives of this world. It's the ability to see God for who he is and follow him in faith. And when God provides prophets in the Old Testament, that's what they do. They expose the lies we believe and call us to repentance. They speak a word from God which points the way forward. Or put another way, prophetic insights, number one, expose our sin, and number two, confirm our calling. Prophetic insights expose our sin and they confirm our calling. And in the midst of this destructive season of resistance in Ezra, God sends two prophets. So skip down to Ezra chapter 5, verse 1. It says this, Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edu, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Now, how many of you have actually read the books of Haggai and Zechariah? How many of you have studied the books of Haggai and Zechariah? I don't see a whole lot of hands, right? Thank you in the back there. You, you teach that, right? Let those fifth and sixth graders know. That's right. I don't see a lot of memes on the internet from Haggai and Zechariah. I see a lot from Psalms and Philippians, but very little from the minor prophets. Like, we like to skip over them. Well, this week you should go back and you should read Haggai and Zechariah because now you can know a little bit about the context to which they were speaking. They come to God's people at the end of this season of testing, and they revive God's people for God's mission. They come on the scene around 520 B.C., just as Darius is taking the throne, and these prophets have some very different approaches, right? Haggai is the plain speaker who tells it like it is. 
Haggai is the person who's not going to mince words. He's going to see right through you and call you to repentance. Some of us have a Haggai in our lives right now. Others of us, we like to be the Haggai. In fact, that might be a t-shirt. I'm the Haggai. This prophet exposes those blind spots that are keeping Israel from pursuing God's call on their lives. So picture this. It's been decades since God's people stopped building the temple. Forty years. Forty years. They, they've given into fear and intimidation. And Haggai comes on the scene, and we read this in his book. It says, in the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month of the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai to the, pro to the prophet, to Zerubbabel. All right, so there we are. We're back in Ezra. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say this time, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Right, so now Darius is on the throne, Haggai's on the scene, and what's the first thing he says? He says, these people are making excuses. <laughs> he says, these people are saying it's okay to delay God's call in their lives. And so he confronts them. Skip down to verse 4. He says, it's time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses, which means they're really expensive. While this house, the temple, lies in ruins. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does, does so to put them into a bag with holes. Ouch. But do you see what Haggai is saying here? He's saying, you people keep telling me it's not time to build the temple, which God called you to do. And yet, and yet you spend all your time and all your money on expensive houses for yourselves. You overeat, you drink too much, you buy a lot of clothes, you have shopping sprees at the market. You spend so much money on yourselves and nothing is left over. And the indictment is this, you have sown much and you have nothing to harvest. What's there to show for your efforts? Now in the first movement I asked, are you afraid to build God's kingdom? The second movement here is about Haggai giving us prophetic insight because maybe the reason we don't build God's kingdom, maybe the reason we don't answer God's call is because we are too comfortable. Material comfort keeps us from answering the call. You're planted and called, he says. Don't just be a plant. Ultimately, it's about worship. We worship comfort and ignore God. So Haggai, the plain speaker, brings this out in the open, and then the people respond. Back to Ezra 5, verse 2. It says, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, supporting them, calling them out, showing them the way. So Haggai comes along and calls out this materialism and laziness. The prophetic insight exposes the sin, and they respond. After many years, they start working on the temple again, but that then starts to attract some attention from the local authorities. So now we meet a new character, Ezra 5.3. At the same time, Tatanai, new character, the governor of the province beyond the river where Jerusalem was, came to them and spoke to them thus, who gave you a decree to build this house and finish this structure? They also asked this, what are the names of the men who are building this building? So Tatnai, the new governor, we meet him, and he sees all these people doing unauthorized construction work, and he wants to know why. Who said you could do this? I want the names of everybody on this work site. I want to make sure they have the right clearance, the right papers. 
And that line of questioning starts to intimidate Zerubbabel, and I imagine he might, he might be considering another pause in the project. Now, those of you that have been at Millington for many years, let's say going back to the early 2000s, know that we encountered a similar situation here in our church. The church was growing, and we raised money to purchase a plot of land across town so we could expand our facility. But there were many roadblocks that prevented us from moving forward, just like Zerubbabel encountered. And there's a long story associated with that, but basically God directed us back here to reinvest and expand our facilities on this corner. But for a time, it was really discouraging. We needed fresh vision. And that's where Zechariah comes in, Zechariah the prophet. He's the vision caster. Remember, God sends prophets to expose our sin and then point us toward his will. So in the midst of this encounter, Zechariah reassures Zerubbabel that God is with him. He says, finish the mission, answer the call. Look at Zechariah chapter 4. He, he writes this, who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, see, we're back in Ezra, you shall make a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amidst shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house, and his hand shall complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Wow. Now, can you imagine getting a, a confirmation like that in your life? Because you see, in times of trial and testing, God still wants us to, 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 to follow him. He wants us to answer the call. And so he gives the prophetic insight, which exposes their sin, confirms their calling. That's what prophetic insights do. Haggai says you're selfish. Zechariah says God is with you. Follow him. Trust him. Finish the mission. So let me summarize the rest of the chapter, uh, chapter 5. Verses 6 to 17 are another letter. And they outline what Tatnai, the governor, sends to the new king, Darius. And he basically explains that he found a bunch of people building this temple, and he wanted to check it out. Is this legit? In the letter, you'll find Zerubbabel's response to the questions that Tatnai asked. So Zerubbabel explains, we are servants of the God of heaven and earth. And we are rebuilding the house that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished. That's Solomon. He, he tells them that Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon captured them, brought them into exile. Cyrus, though, sent them back to rebuild the temple. And he says, we are finishing what he sent us to do. And then uh, Tatnai ends the letter by asking, essentially, Darius, can you check this out for me? Like, is, is this right? I think this is where the, the fact checkers got their start, although it took a longer time to figure it out. So Tatnai awaits the king's response, but in the meantime, Zerubbabel has the word from Zechariah, and he decides to trust God and continue the work on the temple. And then we read this in Ezra 5, 5. It says, But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop until the report should reach Darius, and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. Now notice, the king did not clear this yet. Right? He could have written back and ordered punishment, but the people of God, guided by prophetic insight, chose to trust God and obey his call. You see that phrase, the eye of God? Right? The author is indicating that God is with them in their mission, just as Zechariah had confirmed. God gave them a calling, and his watchful eye would see it through to completion. So verse 5 is pointing to a really important applicational point for all of us, and that's this. When God plants us in a location... He calls us to a mission, and he offers providential protection. When God plants us 
in a location. He calls us to a mission, and he offers providential protection. That's what Ezra 4 to 6 is about. Yes, there will be resistance to the mission. Yes, problems will arise, and it can be scary. But at the end of the day, God will be with you. And yet we so often struggle to believe this. Right? I'll be honest, I struggle with this many times. And what we do is we start to argue with God. We say, God, God, why did you call me to New Jersey? Right? <laughs> right? Why did you plant me here? I, I, I could live in so many nicer places. Have you seen the weather report in San Diego? Jesus, are you really calling me to speak to that person? I'm not bold. I'm not articulate. It's not my gifting. Besides, I'm afraid. God plants us in a location. He calls us to a specific, unique mission, and then he offers providential protection. Do you believe that? It's scary. Right? Th things were even clear for Zerubbabel, and yet they stopped work for 40 years. Always making excuses, getting comfortable. Because the reason we don't build God's kingdom so many times is because we miss the watchful eye of God. He's accomplishing his purposes through us. And do you know what that means? It means that God will provide. Right? How many of you out there struggle to believe that God will provide? Yes, th there are seasons when the bank account is low. And you say, how am I going to pay the bills? I mean, again, do you think that Zerubbabel and his clan wondered how the building project was going to get funded? God will also preserve. How many of you right now are walking through a challenge and you're asking if God is going to preserve you through it? Will there be better days on the other end? If God is calling you to something, he will provide and he will preserve. Do you believe that? And if you don't, it may be the reason that you're holding back from building the kingdom in a way that God has called you to. You may need to do some work with the Lord in prayer. Pray for prophetic insight. Ask the Lord to speak to you through his word and other people. He's planted you in a location for a mission, and he will providentially protect you. So finally, it's finally after all that that you can rest in the king's favor. That's number three. So let's, let's briefly look at how this story finishes. Ezra 6, we read that Darius, now on the throne, makes a decree responding to the letter from... Um, Oh, he, responding to the letter from Tatnai, he makes a decree and he enlists all the smartest people in the city to go find some ancient documents and corroborate what the letter says. King Cyrus, he finds out, did tell them to build the temple and he gives specific instructions. It's all true, so the work can resume. And so Darius begins the, his response to the governor like this. Ezra 6.6, 6, he says, Now therefore, Tatnai, governor of the province beyond the river, keep away. Let the work of this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. Now, that's a pretty definitive response. Hands off. Keep away. Let them complete the work. Talk about God's providence. Zerubbabel kept working without this word from the king, but God protected his people for their work. Not only that, check this out. Darius continues. He, he makes other provisions. Look at verse 8. He says, moreover... The cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue. You say, what? Say, thank you. Somebody out there said, what? Huh? Talk about God's provision. How many times have you asked, how am I going to pay for that? You don't think the Jews asked that? Again, if God is calling you, he will provide. He will move the heart of people and the finances will come. And Darius goes even further. He says whatever they need for burnt offerings, bulls and rams and sheep and wheat, salt, wine, oil, give them that also. 
so they can offer sacrifices, so they can worship their God. What a king! See, Darius isn't just letting them build the temple. He's actively advocating for it. He's putting the full power of his government behind it, and only God can do that. Do you see how God works, church? King Cyrus lets the Jews return. Then they encounter resistance, but God preserves them for 40 years until the favor of this new king rests on them again, until God's protection comes in full force. And then look at verse 11. Darius says this. He says, also, all you people out there, I make a decree that if anybody alters this edict, what I have said, a beam is going to get pulled from his house, and he shall be impaled on it, and his house shall be made a dunghill. Wow, that's graphic. But do you see how far he's willing to go here? He says, if anybody disturbs the work of God, there's going to be consequences. The king is offering protection. Because when God calls you, he protects, he provides, he preserves. Look at the result, verse 14. They finished building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. The temple was finished. Amen. Church, God plants us in a location. He calls us to a specific, unique mission. And then he offers providential protection. So as we close and the worship team comes on stage, I want to reflect on this just both personally and as a church. Because I believe God has given each of us a specific individual calling. He's planted you for a purpose. He has placed Millington Baptist Church on this corner for a mission. The question is, will we answer the call to God's mission? Now, to do that, you have to trust him. And so I'm going to ask three questions, and they're going to be on the screen, just based on what we discussed. And I want you to ask yourself each question. The first one is this. Where have you seen God's protection? Right, both personally and as a church, what trials has God brought you through? Now, NBC has been here since 1851, and I'm not great at math, but that's a long time. God has protected his church for many years, and he is still using us. And even if the cultural forces come, he wants us to be faithful to the call. And the same thing is true in your personal life. Second, how have you experienced God's provision Right, there, there have been seasons of financial drought, probably, personally, and as a church, and yet God always manages to provide. Maybe not in how we think, but when he, what he calls us to, he's going to provide the resources, whether that's financial or, or leadership or friendship or encouragement, whatever. And then third, where can you trust him for preservation? Because some of us right now, we may be getting ready to throw in the towel. We say the suffering is too great. We've been going through this really hard season. Do you trust that God is preserving you for a purpose? The reason we don't build God's kingdom so many times is we don't believe that God will protect, provide, or preserve. And so we start to look back at our own abilities. But God wants us to lift our eyes up to Him and realize that He is bigger than any trial or opposition. And the way we overcome opposition is by fixating our eyes on the slaughtered Lamb of God who defeated sin and hell and Satan and death on the cross. He is the one worthy of trust. And so the temple is completed, and Zerubbabel and his people come together, and they have a worship service. They celebrate the Passover. 
They remember who God is and how he saved them so many years ago. And we read this in Ezra 6.20. So they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles. They slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles. And friends, it's here that the story points to something bigger. But the story of Ezra and Nehemiah is about God, by his grace, saving and restoring exiled people. It's the story of the Exodus. God saves his people in exile. And don't miss this, it's also the Christian story. Because everybody in this room, or you're watching at home or you're listening later on, you were once in exile if you're a Christian. You were once far from God. But then he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be the true and better Passover lamb. And if you don't know Jesus Christ, you are in exile. But the good news of the gospel is that you can come home. You can be adopted into the family of God because of the blood of the lamb. On the cross, Jesus paid our penalty, absorbed the wrath of God against sin, secured our salvation. We didn't deserve it, but he did it by his mercy. He is the fulfillment of all the prophecies. And one day he will come back and the dwelling place of God will be with his people. The true temple will be here. In Revelation 5, John tells us everybody's going to be gathered around singing the same song. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And all we can do is sing with joy like God's people did in, in Ezra 6. Church, the Passover Lamb was slain for you. Will your life sing with joy? Because of Jesus, you are protected from wrath. Because of Jesus, all the riches of heaven have been provided for you. And if you know Jesus, he will preserve you to the end. Now, live with joy as you rise up and build his kingdom in the city where he is both planted and called you. Will you do that? I pray that you will. Amen. Let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, we come before you and just, we're humbled by your word, by the narrative we hear here in Ezra. But we're also reminded that that's history, Lord, and, and that you have come and you have intervened in history, that you have chosen a people for yourself. And if we know you through your son, Jesus, you, you are walking with us right now, Lord God. If, if you don't know Jesus, he's calling you. He's saying, come home. Come to the cross. The Passover lamb was slaughtered for you. And if you give your life to him, if you surrender, man, you're part of the family. Lord, would you guide us? Would you show us? Would you help us to know that you provide, you protect, and you preserve for your glory in Jesus' name.